So on October 30th, 1938, Orson Welles did a reading on CBS radio of, of H.G. Wells' work, The War of the Worlds. You guys heard of this? And, and, and like, it, it, there, there are so many reports out there about what really happened, but, but there are definitely some reports out there that suggest whenever Orson Welles started this reading, he did not begin as though he was reading you know, this, this work of H.G. Wells. Instead, he began as though he was you know, breaking news of this alien invasion that was making its way into the United States. And reports say that by 8.32 that evening, just 32 minutes into the broadcast, that, that CBS had received phone calls, CBS Radio had received phone calls demanding that they halt the broadcast. They were receiving phone calls of, 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 of neighborhoods and areas that were, were panicked because of this alien invasion that was making its way into the United States. Rumors of small town neighbors who were, who, who were calling and saying that there were mobs gathering in the streets and, and reports of mass, ca mass casualties and, and, and so many other things because there were people who were really believing that there was an alien invasion coming into the United States. So, maybe that doesn't amaze you, but that's pretty amazing, right? And the reason I bring this up, I, I, there, there's an author by the name of, 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 of Brett Davis, and I think that, 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 that he sums this up perfectly. He, 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 the, 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 he said, whenever it comes to this reading of the War of the Worlds, the audience had heard science fiction being performed, not news being reported. However, because listeners misunderstood the, the genre, they suffered because of it. And today we are beginning a new sermon series, and over the course of the next seven weeks, we're going to look at, at really just a, a couple of chapters in what is the most misunderstood book in the entire Bible, the book of Revelation. And all throughout you know, history, Christians have often disagreed with how to interpret this book, well, you know, how, how to interpret the, the, this vision that, that, that John had. But, but the one thing that all of us can agree on is that the book of Revelation, at its very core, is a letter that has been written to churches. Yes, it is full of apocalyptic imagery, and, but it also contains endless amounts of hope. But it was written to these seven churches to encourage them in their trials and to instruct them how to remain faithful. Because at the very end, if, if you want to know, you know, I know a lot of times we get asked, you know, what does the book of Revelation really mean? What's the book of Revelation really trying to tell us? The very bottom line of the book of Revelation is this. Church, hold on. Things are going to get bad. Things are going to be difficult, but don't give up, because in the end, we win. And man, this is such an appropriate message for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus today, and what, what the book of Revelation really does whenever we, we apply what this message is to our life, what it makes us do is it makes us look at what we claim to believe and to prove that we believe what we claim to believe. 
And so Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 are where these seven letters to these churches are written. But before we jump into the first letter today, I want us to just look at a little bit of the setup of, of Revelation. Again, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. This is the same John that we talked about last fall. You know, we spent several months going through the Gospel of John. It's the same guy. This is the guy who nicknamed himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, I mean, he had a high view of himself and his relationship with Jesus. He's the, so he's not only the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, but he's also the guy who wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. John did not have a very creative mindset whenever it came to, to titling his works, but, but he wrote all of these letters, and it's the same man who wrote Revelation. And by this point in John's life, he has been leading in the church for nearly six decades. He's been persecuted repeatedly over and over again, but, but he has persevered through it all. He has continued to lead. He has continued to preach the resurrection and the supremacy of Jesus. But now as an old man, he has been exiled by Rome to the island of Patmos. And it's there on the island of Patmos that John received this vision of a new heaven and a new earth and King Jesus. And I love how John describes what, what, what this victorious Jesus this heavenly Jesus looks like. In, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, he says this. He says that I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Just try and imagine this. This is so, so beautiful. And when I turned, I saw golden, there's seven golden lampstands. That's these churches. And among the lampstands, so among these churches, was one like a son of man. This phrase that has so much meaning back in the Old Testament the name that Jesus gave himself as well. Among these lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice sounded like the rushing waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And then John says, and when I saw him, he did what I'm guessing all of us would do. I, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, do not be afraid. I hope this gives you hope today. This... That this kingly Jesus said, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And it's this glorious kingly Jesus who has this message for these churches in and around Ephesus, which was the major city at the time in the province of the Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And, and in some of these churches, they, they had been experiencing persecution. Others of the churches, they had severe doctrinal and practical issues. But all of them, all of them, in some way, shape, or form, had drifted away from who it was that Jesus had called them to be. 
And so the very first of his letters is addressed to the church at Ephesus. And, and, and the Ephesian church is a well-known church. It's talked about all the time throughout the New Testament. It was well-visited. We know that Paul, he wrote a letter. I mean, we have the letter of Ephesians written to this group of Christians. We know that through, through Paul's missionary journeys that Paul spent at least two years with these people. We know that Timothy, Paul's protege, you know, his, his, his little follower, he, he ended up spending time with the church in Ephesus. And now we even have the apostle John who is ministering to them as well. And so to say that, that the church in Ephesus had a pedigree would honestly be an understatement. But even amongst their pedigree, they, they, they were surrounded by such an immoral culture. And by the end of the first century, whenever John is writing this this revelation, this vision that he's received. The church in Ephesus is a second-generation church who is largely living off the prestige and the reputation and the momentum of the past. They had experienced so many great moments in the past, but their present condition had gotten off base. And recently, I've been asked, as, as you know, different people have found out that we're doing this sermon series, and, and, and some people come to me and they've said, hey, Andy, so out of these seven churches, which one do you think, you know, represents us, you know, the, the, the church today? And there's honestly a couple of them. But one of the churches that I feel like greatly represents the church today is the church in Ephesus. And so what I want to do today, normally whenever I, I preach, if you've been around here for a while, you know I like to go kind of verse by verse and then break down the verse. I don't want to do that today. I want to just read you this entire letter that is written to the church in Ephesus, and then we can go back and talk about it just a little bit. But here is what King Jesus, this King from Revelation 1, here's what King Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds, keep hold of that word, hold on to that word, holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks, hold on to that word, among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. All this good, I hold this against you, for, for you have forsaken the love you had at first. Church, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And in these seven short verses, there are so many words that should provide endless amounts of encouragement and hope to us today. But there are also endless amounts of words that, that, that should warn us not to become lax in our devotion to Christ. 
In verse 1, he, we, we see this talk about the seven golden lampstands. Again, these lampstands represent the seven churches which these seven letters are addressed to. But in verse 1, we, we, we see these two words that describe Jesus' actions that really stick out. The first word is the word holds. And the second word is the word walks. It's saying that, that Jesus holds being, being present tense. This isn't past. This isn't something that Jesus used to do. This is something that Jesus is currently doing and will forever do. He holds these seven stars in his right hand. And, and, and he, in, in other words, he, he has in his possession these, these church angels. He, he holds these church angels with this divine authority. He is responsible for them. And they are accountable to him. But whenever you think about Jesus holding, I mean, to me, I, I, I think about the picture of a, a child who is, who is overwhelmed. I think about the picture of a child who is overcome. I think about a child who is, is, is honestly just, just scared out of their mind. They're just trying somehow to keep their head above water. And they want to, all that they want to do is they want to go and be in the presence of their parents. They want to go and be with their father. They want to go be with their mother. And what every good parent does whenever you have a small child who comes to you and they are scared whenever they are overwhelmed, every good child, parent will pick up that child and hold them and comfort them and protect them. And that's the picture that we get of Jesus with his church today because Jesus cares so deeply for his church. Every single church that Jesus has purchased with his blood, with his own blood, is precious to him. But not only does he hold the church, not only does he care for the church, but he also walks among the church. Think about this imagery. Like continuously he is walking among the church, meaning that he is continuously present among the church. Jesus is no absentee landlord. That's one of the number one things that you hear people say about God from time to time is that, sure, maybe he put this world into motion, but after he put it into motion, he just sat back in his rocking chair and kicked up his feet, and he's like, okay, now you all go fend for yourself. But Jesus is walking among the church. He is, he is present among his church. He, he, he is up close and personal with his church. He is watching over the church. He is sustaining the church. He is protecting the church. Meaning that he sees what we do. He hears what we say. He knows what we think. And hopefully this is something that they should be that, that is a great source of assurance and also a great source of accountability. G.K. Beale, he, he, he talks about the image of Christ walking among the lampstands is intended to push the church to remember that they are a lampstand, that the church is a light to the watching world. And from all outside appearances, this church in Ephesus, they were shining their light brightly. The church in Ephesus, they were active and they were doing many, many good things. They worked so hard and they held such a high view of morality. They didn't fall for false teaching. They, they held the deep convictions and were even willing to face persecution for their faith. And, and every single part of that is admirable. Every single part of that is what we as, as, as Jesus followers should claim to attain, we should all be people 
who are willing to say that I, that are willing to prove with our lives that we truly believe what we confess to believe. Can we just take a moment and acknowledge what our lives would look like, the hope that we would live with, the things that bother us that would no longer bother us, if we truly lived out the proof that we believe what we claim to believe, because even if the worst thing possible happened, if what we claim to believe is true, then even if the worst possible thing happened, we still win, right? But so often, that's not where we find ourselves. And before the, 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 this church in, in Ephesus, they were willing to adore so much pain. They were willing to do so many good things. But doing good things and enduring pain are not the ultimate goal. From the outside, everything was great. But verse 4 says, But yet I hold this against you, for you have forsaken the love you had at first. They were doing all the right things, but they had stopped doing all the right things for all the right reasons. You see, obedience out of duty had replaced obedience out of love for Christ. And maybe whenever we hear that today, that doesn't move us, that doesn't shake us. Maybe we don't think that's truly that big a deal, but let me just try and make it a little bit clearer for you. Because obedience out of duty as opposed to obedience out of love for Christ is the difference between I obey and Jesus accepts me. Or Jesus accepts me, so I will gladly obey. And to try and make it clear how big that difference is, one of them is the gospel. And the other one is a false gospel. Jesus accepts me, so I will gladly obey. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with these few words, Jesus communicates just how jealous he is for his church. That's one of those attributes that you read in the Old Testament about our God is a jealous God. And you're like, whoa, 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 what does that mean? But Jesus right here shows that, that heart is still the heart of God. We see it in Exodus whenever God is talking about idolatry. He says how jealous he is for his people, how jealous he is for his church and that he's after more than our actions, but he's after our hearts. You see, even doing good at times, even, even just wanting to do all the good that you can possibly do, that can also become an idol. And for the Ephesian church, doing good had become an idol. Grant Osborne, he says this about the Ephesian. He said that they had lost the first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in the Christian life and had settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than depth. But Jesus, he very clearly says to the church in Ephesus that they have forsaken the love that they had at first. And, and there are several popular thoughts about what this love is that they had forsaken. And, and honestly, all of them really go together hand in hand pretty well. So it's probably a combination of, of all of these things. But some people believe that that, 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 they had, that, that they had held such a high view of morality and they had held a, such a high view of, of, of doing certain kinds of good and, and, and putting on a certain kind of front that they had stopped or they had forgotten or they had lost their love for one another. That they 
had allowed a love of being right to replace a love of others. And perhaps that's what That's the love that they had forsaken. Perhaps that's what was being held against them. Others believe that they had lost their love for the gospel. And I've said this to you guys before. This is such a fear of mine with the church today. That they had had allowed the message of what Jesus did by defeating sin and death to become stale. They were no longer moved by the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Yet there are still others who believe that they had simply just lost their love for God. That the awe and wonder of an all-powerful God who is sovereign, who is sustaining, no longer did anything inside of them. But whatever the love is that they had forsaken or they had lost, they had moved into this mode of autopilot to where they did what was good and they did what was right, but their hearts had grown cold. So here's my question for you today. Can you relate to that? Can we relate to that today? All is not well with the church in Ephesus, but all is not lost. Just like for us today, if all is not well with our soul, it does not mean that all is lost. Because all is never lost when it comes to Jesus and his church. But what do we do whenever we find ourselves in this place of autopilot? Thankfully, Jesus, he gives us the answer. Right after these these critiques in verse 4 and 5, he tells us, he, he, he follows up with a call to repent. To undergo this change in mind that ultimately results in a change of action and attitude. He tells us to remember how far we have fallen... One of the greatest dangers for us as Christians today, for for Jesus' followers today, is to forget the depths in which Jesus went to save you. Whenever we forget that, it is so easy to all of a sudden have a higher view of ourselves and our spirituality than what we should. And even after we become Jesus' followers, it is so, so easy for us to allow our hearts to grow cold, for our motives to become misaligned, for, for the doing good, for, for all, all kinds of things to, to, to be that idol in our lives. And whenever that happens, we are told here that we must repent and remember how far we've gotten away from the life that Jesus desires for us to be, to live in, and, 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 and how far we've gotten away from, from, from the church that Jesus desires for us to be. We must remember, we must remember that labor is no substitute for love. The purity is no substitute for passion, and deeds are no substitute for devotion. And in addition to to, to this repentance, he says that you need to go back and do the things that you did at first. I don't do a ton of marriage counseling, and the reason I don't do a ton of marriage counseling is because I'm not very good at it. I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't want to mess anything up. I can listen, and I can point you to Scripture But as far as asking the right questions and all those things, I just am not good. But whenever I have a chance to talk to a married couple who is struggling in their relationship, I always encourage them to do one thing. What are the things that you used to do whenever you felt most in love? Did you used to go and buy her flowers and leave them on her car? 
Did you, did, did you used to write love notes to each other? And over time, all those things have become things of the past. What is it that you used to do whenever you felt most in love? And I believe that's what the message to the church in Ephesus is right here. Go back and do the things you did whenever you felt most in love with Jesus. What is it? Did you pray more? Did you read more? Did you study more? Did you worship more? What is it that you did? Did you journal more? Did you just honestly look around the world minute after minute and find thing after thing that you could just simply thank God for? What did you do whenever you were most on fire, whenever you were the most passionate? What did you do in your relationship with Jesus? And Jesus is saying, go back and do that again. Remember. Remember. And as this first letter to this first church comes to an end, there's a couple of last things that, that are addressed with the Ephesian church. He brings up this group known as the Nicolaitans and how he hates their acts and he's thankful that they also hate the acts of the Nicolaitans. And we don't know a ton about this group, the Nicolaitans, but, but there is some historical evidence that tells us a little bit about them. And what it looks like is this. It's that the Nicolaitans were, were a group of people who were willing to compromise their Christian witness in the name of pagan religion and culture. It is believed that, that they might have been some kind of Christian who, who wanted to maintain a level of social credibility. And so they would argue that, that, along with culture, that what people did with their bodies was of no consequence to their, to, to, to their own spiritual condition. In other words, they were comfortable to combine elements of the Christian faith with the surrounding religious practices and culture. And man, if that does not sound familiar today. We live in a world that is so full of evil and we have so confused ourselves that we call evil good. But what Jesus is making clear right here, <laughs> I want you to hear this, is that whenever the words of Jesus and culture collide, Jesus' word must prevail. Why? It's that verse 7 piece. Because he is the one who is victorious. He is the one who, who through his victory, has given us victory. That through his victory, he allows us to participate in victory. And the victory that Jesus provides, please hear me, church, the victory that Jesus provides, this world and this culture will never be able to provide. And this message to, to the church in Ephesus and, and honestly the rest of, of the churches in Revelation, and honestly it's the same message that is, is, is for the church today. It's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33. Whenever he said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's revelation. It's going to get bad. It's going to get bad, but hold on. Hold on. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Because I have overcome the world.
This theme of overcoming is present all throughout the book of Revelation. And it combines this, the, 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 these promise, the, this promise that, that God gives to those who don't give up and who do persevere. And it combines it with God's warning to those who do give up and fail to persevere. The church in Ephesus, they had felt attacked and rightfully so. And this letter to them describes their faithfulness and their perseverance and in the face of false teaching and a secular culture and persecution and suffering. But they needed to be reminded in spite of all of that that just because you feel like the world is against you, listen, Christian, just because you feel like the world is against you does not mean you get to be against the world whom Jesus died to redeem. So today, we have the opportunity to meet difficulty and even opposition with truth and love and faithfulness. And we can respond to the world with grace and keep giving more as we feel attacked. And when we feel beat up, we can choose to respond like Jesus. We can both follow the truth and show love for all in this world. We can respond in faith that what he said is true. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. We can live and we can prove that we truly believe what we claim to believe. Will you pray with me this morning? Jesus, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your church. And Jesus, I pray today that you will meet us in this place. Because, God, it is impossible to read the words to the church in Ephesus and not be convicted by them. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will convict us where we need to be convicted. I pray that you will open our eyes to the areas that we have sacrificed your word and your ways on the altar of culture. And so, Jesus, whenever we live in this world, may we be a light, a shining light, a lampstand in the dark. Jesus, whenever it comes to compromising who we are or staying true to your word, may your word always prevail. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.